Welcome to Gen Z Hoops, the Gen Z basketball coaching and sports business show. On this podcast, you'll learn from professional players, coaches, and executives from all over the world and see the court in a brand new way. And now, joining you courtside, your Gen Z host, John Hartafillis. Coach Nick, how are you? Uh, I'm good. I'm good. I'm, how are you doing, John? I'm doing great. Really excited to have you on. Like, like I said before we got on the, on the uh, before we went live, I'm just so excited to talk to you because you're someone on YouTube that I've been watching for years and to actually get to talk to you and hear you responding back is, is really, really cool. So, <laughs> so thank you so much. To get started, I'm curious, have, have you always been Coach Nick or were you ever Coach Hoss? Has that ever happened or were you always Coach Nick? You know, I was always like Mr. Nick or Coach Nick. I was teaching in high school and, you know, my last name is Houselman and it would, it would get butchered anyway. Uh, so it was a little bit easier. And then I was always a Pete Newell fan uh, from Cal in the 60s. He's a guy who, you know, John Wooden couldn't beat the last 10 times they played in the, in the Pac-10 uh, back in the day. So he was always Coach Pete. So I thought that would be a nice homage to him to like, you know, sort of use the same kind of, uh, you know, structure for how, that, how they referred to me. But I don't know. I always felt like it, it didn't need to be that formal um, to, to be able to command enough respect to run a team. Definitely. And, and it's so cool to think that way because a, a lot of coaches kind of maybe old school, maybe think that way. Um, I'm curious, what, what did that first steps to coaching look like? Were you because obviously you're doing so much video stuff now. Did you start doing a lot of video work? What, what did that look like for you? Well, I suppose, you know, I was always sort of a coach on the floor. I kind of had that mind for it, as, you know, even as back as like eighth grade and just, you know, talking to my coaches and analyzing and diagramming. I can remember going like as a Bulls fan in sixth grade, uh, there was like talk, you know, it was hard to watch the games. They weren't all on TV. So you'd read about in the paper how they're running some one three one defense. So I, I, I have a memory of like in sixth grade, like I got to go to a game and I think I brought some paper and a pen. Like I wanted to like diagram this and see what they were doing. So even back then I was kind of into it. Um, but certainly as the, in a professional sense, when I was a basketball manager at University of Wisconsin for two years, that was really where I cut my teeth in, you know, learning how a, a division one program is run from the ground up and everything in between. Uh, so that was really where I got an opportunity to learn, I think, a lot about uh, coaching itself and what goes into it and what, you know, what makes a good coach or a bad coach. Oh, definitely. And then what kind of started that process of you getting onto YouTube? Were you, were you coaching at the time and just thought it'd be cool to, to, show, to show that to the world? Or, or how did that really come about into turning into something that you're, that you're doing all the time? Well, you know, I, I was a, a long-term sub and an assistant coach at a high school in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, and then I took a break from that and started my own business doing, you know, like high-end event videos and that kind of thing. So I was gone from coaching for a while uh, throughout the early, you know, the, the 2000s. And so um, right around 2010, though, I was kind of looking for something else to do and see if I can't, you know, figure out a way to, you know, build, build another business. And, you know, YouTube at that point was still pretty young and, you know, there were some people out there that were making, you know, good money just kind of being funny on camera. So um, I decided to well, let's let's mix all of my knowledge I do have of coaching, which I had been kind of dormant for a while, uh, with all my experience as an editor on on you know the video side, and then you know I had experience as a you know performing improv, and I had you know a performance experience as well. So we thought let's mix all these things together. Let's study what they did, what these people did to get big on YouTube, and see if we can recreate that. And um, so that was right around 2010. Now uh, a few months after that, I got hired to be the head coach at the school I had been at before. So that was a nice synergy there where I could kind of use uh, both jobs to to enhance each other. 
Awesome thing about how you're able to play off of each, play them off of each other. And I'm thinking from 2010 to now, I mean, obviously so much has changed and it's, it's more than just your subscriber count, but both the content you're making, the game itself has changed so much uh, since then. Like there, there's so many things that, that, are, that are wildly different. What, what is the process like for you in, in making a video now and how is it different from what you would do back then? Oh, wow. I mean, I, you know, they're all still up there, the old videos, which I don't recommend anybody going to watch because they're pretty bad. But um, and, and again, I can remember I, I didn't know what I was doing. I remember I remember trying to explain to people what I was doing in 2010. It was like really kind of hard. Um, and, and in fact, just saying that you were a YouTuber, that wasn't even a term yet, was also sort of a stigma. Like, you know, how's your blog doing was always like the question. And I was like, yeah, it's not a blog. This is like a, I'm trying to build this into a business. So that was always frustrating in the beginning. But uh, as far as like how it started, you know, um, I, I was on camera a lot more back then. I mean, I think it was more of a, of a speed thing where now I, I just, the, the quicker I can do it, the quicker to get it out, the better it'll do, uh, which means if I'm not on camera, then I can fix any kind of uh, mistakes in the voiceover a lot easier than if I have to try and do it like in one take on camera, it takes me 10 takes. It just makes the process longer. Um, that said, the irony is that some of, some of the real keys to being a successful YouTuber is being on camera. So I'm, you'll probably see me more on camera going forward as it is. But that process was a lot. The, the, the videos were a lot shorter back then, too. Um, they were probably more trollish. Like, you know, everyone was trying to sort of, you know, one up each other in hot takes to see who can get, you know, more attention that way. Um, I, I always try to balance it. Like once you're in the door with real, you know, analysis. But I, 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 I sense that there were some some earlier videos, which are, again, up there that, um, you know, might have. Uh, I might have been a lot more in my older age, being a lot more, um, you know, accepting of certain players and how they played uh, versus back then when I was, you know, a little bit more rigid, I think, in my coaching thinking. Oh my, it's, it's really cool to think about that. And that also posed, the, I know I brought it up at the beginning about how not, not just your, your, your channel has changed or, or YouTube itself has changed, but also the game that you're covering and the game you're analyzing has changed so much. I, I've only, I, I, us as fans have kind of seen it from a fan's perspective and all the coaches kind of keep to themselves. You've been spreading it and, and, and kind of, and show and showcasing that, you know, you could see from your channel over the years, how this stuff, all this stuff has changed. I, everyone talks about the three-point shot and how bigs can shoot now and all that. Have you seen any other changes in the game that that you would say are, are, are hidden under that, but have also played a similar role? I mean, I would have to say that the defenses are also gotten better or even just more creative, perhaps. Um, you know, the rules changes also happened that allowed zone to be played in some form in the NBA. So that changed things. And um, I would say that in, in reaction to the, the offense is getting better, the defensive things have gotten a little bit better as well. Whereas in the past, the rotational stuff that we, we wouldn't have seen because the ball didn't move as much like into the nineties and two thousands, there wasn't as much ball movement as we have now. So as a result, it was, you could argue it was easier to play defense. You could beat on guys because they weren't moving as much um, and the lane was more clogged. So uh, yeah, I mean, aside from the obvious one of like, you know, this much faster pace overall, which is a, the, probably as big as the three point shot itself. Uh, is is the defensive rotations have uh, which have existed all the time and they've always at every level have had what we're seeing now but it just seems like the execution is a lot more on point generally now that said you know we're seeing in this year that uh, teams are just lighting it up from three and the scores again more it's more pace as well but um, you know we're, we are seeing across the board like sort of better understanding of defensive rotations and how to help because they're forced to because everyone can now beat anybody off the dribble these days where back in the day you'd only have one or two guys that could do that in each team. 
it's funny because back in the day it can only even be just a few years ago, back in 2015, we had half as many 25 plus point per game scores as we do now. It's, it, it's really uh, insane to think about how fast everything can change. Is that uh, right? Sure. It's half as many 25 point scores. So, so from 2010 Ooh. to 2015, I believe it's 24 or, or, or something. Or it was, it's in the mid twenties. And from 2015 to 2020, it's 58. It's insane. I, yeah. I, I can share, I can send you the graphic after this. And when you, cause I remember when I was, when I was younger, it's like, Oh, you know, Kobe's leading the league with 28 points a game, stuff like that. And now it's like, if you have 28 points a game, you might be fifth. Like if, if you're, yeah. if you're lucky. I so. was just saying that where like a 20 and 10 guy is not nearly as valuable. Uh, well, it's not nearly as impressive as it used to be for sure. hundred percent. But th- thinking on that though, it's funny to see how things uh things from the past can can resurface and still play by the role like if, in the same way if you're a good mid-range shooter the mid-range shot is still a good shot you just have to be good at it um you made your most recent video about zion and how um he's kind of bringing 90s ball back and him and a few other players what are you kind of seeing with that because it's it, well it might be said that the, the big man's dead if you're good enough at that you could still be very valuable but you just have to be really good yeah. I mean, it's remarkable because, you know, here are three all-stars who do, you know, okay. Randall shoots threes, uh, you know, he shoots four a game and it, it's the most surprising thing compared to how he started this career. You wouldn't have thought there's any way he'd get to 42%. Now, now granted they're wide open, like they're letting him shoot those that won't, that wouldn't happen like in the playoffs. Right. So I don't think that the 42% is really, it's a bit of a mirage, but the bottom line is he will create more spacing than another, somebody else who doesn't shoot threes. Um, but it was remarkable to me to see these three guys. I mean, you can throw Ben Simmons in there who doesn't shoot. Giannis, you can throw in there who can't shoot from behind the arc. Although Giannis is, you know, he hits a few. It's, it is remarkable in, in, in today's game, which is so completely focused on the three-point shot and spreading the floor, that you can still have these guys be really effective. And Zion is, you know, going to lead the league in scoring without question if he stays healthy and continues playing the way he does. Uh, it's just so easy. He gets every shot right at the rim. And, you know, it's it's rare to see a guy who's got the powerful build like that that can grow through people. But then you add the fact that he can jump over people, which is the rare thing. Randall cannot get off the ground very well. Guys in the past, like the Anthony Mason point forwards we had in the 90s, big, bruising, but skilled guys did not have explosion like this. And so suddenly he's getting all the lobs. He gets free on the weak side backdoor cuts. Um, and those are the things he's getting just easy buckets every day, every game. And it's you, you think that that wouldn't be so easy at some point, but he, he, there it is. The offense works well enough for him where he gets lost in the weak side. They find him. You got guys like Lonzo who are going to throw that pass every time. And he just – you don't have to be accurate at all on those lobs. It's always great when you have someone that you could just throw to any part of the backboard and it'll end up in a, in a highlight play. Um, you, brought, you brought up the Knicks, and as a, as a native New Yorker, I just have to kind of uh, jump, jump a conversation over there. Um, and they're winning games recently. I was I was their last game, and I'm going to the one on Thursday, and it's it's fun feeling energy in the garden, and people may be celebrating a little bit too much because nothing's happened happened yet. But with guys like Julius Randle, Emmanuel Quickly, everyone's talking about his floater. They have a couple fun, exciting pieces that and maybe on film you might be able to see a, a deeper look. What are you seeing from them, and do you think it's something that they can build on? Well, it's the Thibodeau effect, right? He comes in usually, except for maybe Minnesota, but he comes in, he takes a team that was underachieving or a ragtag group of people, whatever, and like gets them to play defense a lot harder. The offense is rudimentary, but, you know, effective enough. Uh, and, and generally somebody will, will surprise you as a point guard. So in, the, in this tradition, they've had guys like DJ Augustine. Uh, there's another guy who played for the Nets, who I'm forgetting who played for him, who like had his crazy, played the best ball of his career. Um Gosh, he's gone in the league anyway. But like it seems to happen enough. Nate Robinson played well under him too. So it's like these these point guards and quickly throw him in there as well. Now, the only problem I have with that is he's not playing enough minutes. 
he should be playing he should be playing 27 minutes instead of 22 or whatever he's playing now uh accelerate that process get him better quicker he's not intimidated as it is he's not like a rookie who's scared doesn't want to you know finish doesn't want to get mixed it up down low that's my favorite part of when i watch with rookies and you see like the mellow ball the same way these guys are not deferring they're not like just trying to blend in they, they want to you know have an effect on the game so um, there's no question this is all on the right path. The only question is at some point in the next few years, is, is Tibbs going to be the guy to get him to the next level? Or is it going to be simply the building blocks here and then they need somebody else to come in and kind of uh, have a different style? Um, is it decidedly old school coach? Uh, there is room for that to work. Um, but at some point, unless he changes, I suppose the – the you know I haven't actually watched enough Knicks games where I've heard you know usually you hear him in the past in, in on the sideline you can hear him on the on the on the TV just bellowing and yelling and bellowing all over and all all game long I got to tell you you know I think that that kind of wears off at some point you know and that might happen as well that's that's the big concern as a Knicks fan but either way enjoy it because you're on the upward trajectory you're going to have much better basketball being played for the next several years than you had in the last several years and that's certainly cause for uh, for rejoice. God willing, that actually happens. Thank you so much for giving me some hope. And hopefully everyone listening to the show will feel a little bit, will walk away from this feeling a little bit better about the future of the Knicks organization. You brought, you brought up LaMelo Ball, and he's obviously someone that's so fun to talk about, but it's not even so much fun because of the, of the weight of the, of, of the flash or the highlights. It's just he's actually good at basketball, and people kind of forget. A lot of people forget that and think it's all flash. Can you talk about him a little bit and what you've seen? Because he's also someone that I feel like comes up all the time, but people kind of misunderstand exactly why he's coming up. For sure. And I've done a couple of videos of him in the past, like in the deep past where we were like this, you better watch this guy. I mean, we had, I had seen him play as a freshman in high school in the, you know, um, it was the city championship game or the state, one of the state finals games, one of those, uh, you know, as a 13 year old, he was young, by the way, he was playing up. I don't think he would have normally been in ninth grade for his age at that time, uh, playing with his brothers. And uh, he was already the guy you're like, you know what, he might be the best ball brother of them all. Uh, because he was able to do these things at such an early age uh, as it was. So, you know, following him and the IQ, and, and by the way, Lonzo has got the similar thing. He's just kind of being constrained a lot more uh, in his role, which is really frustrating to me. And I, well, I don't know if that's going to change, but there's no question that Lonzo must be looking at some of the clips of uh, his brother and being like, I could do that, man. If I could just get the ball early enough in the backcourt, I could make those passes. So, but um, the thing with LaMelo is it's it's not just – I mean, listen, he can score, he can shoot, he can finish. He's got a lot of creative uh, finishing package uh, at the rim, but the threat of the pass is so strong that it makes everything else that much better. He had a pass last night that I shared that went viral on Twitter where it was sort of on the, on the break, right-handed, one-handed, uh, kind of an underhand flip uh, bounce pass. And you could see that Terry Rozier kind of like hesitated. He wasn't sure if he was really going to throw it or not. And it was such a good pass. He was, it still was right in stride for him to finish the nice reverse. And, um, it was flashy, I suppose, but if you study what he did, and I'm going to actually do a, a quickie video on this on YouTube as, as a YouTube short, um, it probably was the only way he could have possibly gotten that pass through. And that's what we've discovered. A lot of the fancy stuff that like in the past, the coaches would have forbade players from doing, it turns out it's actually the most fundamental best way to get the pass from A to B, you know, even like the behind the back pass off of a, of a pick and roll and you want to pass it to the, to the roll man popping. That behind the back pass is the best way to throw that. And everyone should have that in their arsenal in, in high school level too. And, you know, you can't let coaches say, oh, that's, that's too fancy. You can't do that. Um, I, I'm that guy who was always like, let's, not only can you do it, let's, let's make it a fundamental where we are drilling it and practicing it like you would an overhead pass or a bounce pass. 
That's incredibly interesting. So think, taking that back to like how coaches would actually drill that, how would you, if, if you were um, coaching high school, I'd imagine you'd be coaching very differently now than you would have 10, oh. you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. So how would you drill something like that? How, like, that's so cool. Oh, easy. I mean, that's easy because you're talking about, you want reps, right? You need to have reps over reps. And you also want to have it with defense as well, because uh, no defense reps aren't, aren't as beneficial. And so I think a lot of coaches, not to get too wonky in the coaching side, but um, I think coaches get concerned that well, what if Coach K walks into my uh, practice right at this moment and it looks chaotic? I can't have that. When in reality, it's the chaos that helps these players get better faster. So you have to have drills that have a lot of live defense in there where they're competing, where they're actually trying to you know, uh, make a pass where the defense knows where you're th trying to throw it to. Uh, that's how you get the... Um, the, the variability of, of the play and the jazz and the flow. And that's where they can learn on their own to develop other ways of making those passes. So, you know, you could easily just without defense, you know, two dribbles and then throw it back and then make a line of a two line drill. Right. And like ball screen pop, you know, just do it. Okay. After three or four times though, without defense, then you get into a live situation and just let them play. If they're falling around, the ball goes flying. Great. That's where you get the improvement. Um, don't be so worried about blowing the whistle every single play, over-talking, over-coaching. You could, I, I always say this, like in terms of like even teaching a jump shot, you could lock a kid, a 10-year-old kid in the gym who had never played before and told, you can tell him, uh, teach yourself how to shoot the basketball. And he would have a better form after two months than a bad coach teaching all the bad fundamentals that don't apply anymore to the game for shooting. That guy would have a much worse shot than a guy who just taught himself for 10 months at age 10. So that's the key here. That's the control you have to let go as a coach to allow the players to find these things, make mistakes, uh, and put them in situations where it's live and quick and they and have to improve their reaction time. Uh, you'll see a lot better results. It might look crazy in the very beginning, but aren't we all trying to be best at the end of the season? Like that's sort of the goal here. So don't be so worried about like midway through the season if the practices are still looking a little chaotic. That's that's fantastic, and it's definitely something I, I have to really think about and clip this and watch it over again to really make sure I understand it. Because with my freshman too, it gets we, it, the same thing happens. Like, oh, what if what if the varsity coach comes in, and what if what if we're not doing what we're supposed to do right, right? But in, in the end of the day, maybe that's something. Maybe we have to have that conversation. Uh, maybe it's what's best for the players. So thank you for that. Yeah, I, by the way, we were talking about building culture, and we're, it's really about trust between the player and the coach, right? And the coaches are always railing and complaining and all these things. And it's like, if you take the time to work on individual skills, and here's the difference like between coaching in 2010 and coaching now, I used to think that I, didn't, I, I can't spend any time doing individual instruction in my practices. We got to do, you know, our work on our zone. We got to work on our zone offense. We got to work on our zone press. We got to do all these different five-man things. We don't have time to be doing, you know, our layup finishing packages. Well, then you realize that none of that offense you're trying to run means anything if they can't finish or they can't shoot or they can't dribble. So I realized actually even after that, even though I was resistant to even the notion of doing all the individual skills, all of my triangle offense uh, breakdown drills, which I did uh, incessantly to teach the triangle offense back then, they were actually those drills as well. We were doing live uh, individual skill development without me even really noticing it at the time. I would do it even a lot more now. That's the thing that we need. And I feel like the idea that, um, so there's no better way to develop that trust between a coach and a player then to get in there on individual instruction and work with them on finishing layups or shooting the jump shot, right? Like that's where they will trust that you want them to get as good as they can be. 
And that's what you want, right? I mean, obviously the coach needs to trust that the player will do what they want them to do when they're in the game, but the player has to trust the coach. And it's hard. It's like a real sort of abstract idea. Of how do you develop trust? It's like, no, it's really easy in, in my mind. Just roll your sleeves up, spend time in a regular practice, working one-on-one with these guys and doing individual drills. That goes a long way to developing that trust from the player to the coach, which I think is as important, if not more, than the other way around. This is so interesting, and it's raising the question to me about getting teams to mesh together and really building that chemistry. I'm thinking about the team like the Nets, who they have all this talent, right? But now their biggest thing is, can they figure it out? Can they all become close? Can they all make it work? I'm not saying so much that hypothetically, if you were Steve Nash, but hypothetically, what would you do with a team that had all that perimeter, ta- all, all kinds of talent in general? So you know you could outshoot teams, you know you can out, out, outrun teams. What would you do to kind of get them to all become really close with one another? Oh, um, I mean, I, I was, I was, I was thought you were going to ask me what, what I do to like get them to be a little bit better on defense, which is <laughs> really, oh, the only okay. thing I, 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 I could, I could, I could jump that. I could throw that right in there. Cause that's how yeah. I, I was thinking like teamwork and stuff, but you kind of already, yeah, I'll do that. I'll do the defense yeah. stuff. I mean, that, it's interesting because you know that Kyrie and KD and Harden are already a buddies. Right. And then, yeah. you know, did Joe Harris can, can he hang uh, socially in that thing? Like maybe, you know, the other guys. So obviously, I mean, you know, at that level, it's weird because um, they're all rich you can do whatever you'd want, like off the court. Hey, let's go take out an entire bowling alley just for us for a whole night, right? Whatever you want to do. You can do yeah. all that if you wanted to. In fact, they probably should do that. Like bowling's great, by the way. Uh, I love that uh, for uh, team bonding. Um, so the, obviously the more you can develop that, it helps. Um, but, you know, I, for them, like they are that good. I mean, they literally are at, as good as they want to be. And the defense is probably getting a little bit better now that they've had a little bit more time to practice. And they're not, they don't even have KD on the floor who's going to be like their best defender too. But uh, I mean, as a coach, I'd just be like, listen, you, you can do anything you want on offense. I won't say anything. Just execute these things I need, I need to do on defense and give me some good out of bounds plays when there's a stoppage in play and I draw it up. Those are the only two things I'll ask you to do and then uh, to do hard and really execute well. And then I don't say anything about what you do on offense. That those kind of, you know, and that works in the high school level too. I mean, I can remember when I was coaching and I was using, you know, like I didn't use advanced analytics, but we were using like offensive rebounds uh, and turnovers and three point percentage and these things. And we would, I would say, listen, if we can just shoot, you know, 32% from three, then it's not such a big deal if we turn the ball over 15 times. You know, or if we get out rebounded by 10 rebounds, if we can shoot a little bit better than them. And it takes away a lot of the sort of emotion and the perfection of the game that coaches. I, I think I still see coaches to this day, the high school level who coach who, who want to coach a shutout. Right. And they just wig out when the other team scores. And it's like, dude, they're going to do that about 25, 30 more times this game. You know, it's going to happen. You're not going to stop it. Um, and, and why make your players absolutely insane and crazy by yelling at them and screaming at them like that on a defensive mistake? Um, you know what I mean? hundred percent. I'm thinking about, I, I saw a stat recently about how the both Kyrie, KD and Harden are the top three in isolation scoring by a mile. It's not even close. I mean, the NBA and just how, how, how efficient they are in isolation, but also how, how well they've been meshing together. So coach Nixon, what, what would you do with, with all the talent they have offensively to kind of make them work on defense? So, you know, the, the best defensive teams in the NBA spend time on every practice on their defensive rotations. And so like a team, I got a chance to see practices with like the Warriors, for instance, no matter how short that practice is, they're going to give Ron Adams his 25 minutes of his progressive 
uh, probably the best rotational uh, defensive drill I've ever seen. It kind of flows from every position and you get every kind of rotation and on ball and off ball defensive position you need in all in one drill. And he runs through the iterations and after about 20 minutes, you've covered it. It's amazing. It really is amazing. Uh, and then you go watch them in the games that night and they, they X out perfectly and they rotate from the weak side, drop down from the, from the, from the weak side as well. You know, they do it perfectly. So that really is the key for all these NBA teams is the consistency in practice every time they have a practice. And then the more practices they have, uh, if you run it right now, the, obviously this drill is brilliant. A lot of teams run it. I've seen other teams uh, take it as well. Um, and there's other versions of that too, but the key here is the consistency and then the, the quality of the drill is so high that you won't, there, you couldn't help but just get better over time with that kind of, um, you know, uh, re reinforcement every, every practice. All this stuff about defense and, and closing out of rotations, when you think about sometimes the most basic things with NBA defense, it's kind of the pick and roll coverages that everyone always talks about. With the Bucs, it's always kind of mind-boggling to me and many other fans about how simple they, they, they defend ball screens with a, with a drop and how it's really effective in the regular season, but in the playoffs they've had a lot of trouble. Can you kind of shed some light on, on why that is? Sure. I mean, I, anyone who knows my stuff, it's this is going to be boring because I've talked about it so much, but uh, I've done, done three or four videos probably on it. But uh, I, I've always been troubled by it. And then I had to scratch my head and say, well, listen, they're the number one defensive rated team in the league for two straight years. It's like it must I must be wrong. And then they get in the playoffs. It doesn't work nearly as well because the teams are better and they're prepared. So when you drop, uh, it's really not even about the drop because everybody drops and that's fine because you don't want the big to get beaten so easily uh, from a ball handler coming around the pick and roll. Uh, it's the helping one pass away uh, that leaves the easiest pass that a high schooler can make to the wing or to the corner for an open jump shot. Uh, the defenders cannot run as fast as the ball moves in the air as in a pass. So um, it's a real big problem that they do consistently. And as a result, they, they give up the most wide open three pointers than anybody over the last three or four years. Now, again, they were giving up the most when they were the number one defensive rated team in terms of frequency. The percentage of those threes, though, were always like in the middle or like toward the bottom uh, of, the, uh, of the middle uh, in terms of percentage. And the analytics guys would probably indicate to you that it's really kind of random. Three-point defense is just random to them, right? If they're wide open, if they're not, nothing the defense does really affects that. And they're so freaking wrong. It's it's like drives me nuts, primarily because it's you can limit the amount. And I'm not even sure they understand, like from an X's and O standpoint, how you could limit the amount of threes being taken or open threes being taken. It's very, very simple. Don't allow middle penetration, and that's all about how you move your feet and how you the, the focus of the defense, and don't help one pass away. And if you have a team that does those two, the, the, the opposite of those two things in the Bucks, they're going to give up a lot of open threes. So it's not random. It is what, how their style. Um, now, they were getting away with it, in my, my opinion. Like, at some point, as a coach, for me, as a defensive coach, I would say I would still want to limit the amount of open three-point shots the other team gets, especially as we move into this era and deeper in this era and more and more shooters. Um, they, they were getting away with it for two years, not necessarily in the playoffs, although I got to do one more deep dive. I can't remember if I did this, but I, I have a feeling if we look at the three-point percentage of teams in the playoffs against the Bucs, that must have gone up on their open shots versus the, the regular season. And certainly this year where everyone is shooting a lot better with no fans in the stands and there's no, there's no pressure when the people are screaming and yelling at you, which you would like to think doesn't necessarily affect NBA players, but it does. Uh, and the numbers are bearing that out. They're now no, no longer, they're now giving up the highest percentage on those wide open three point shots, both in frequency and in, in makes. 
And as a result, their defensive rating is like 13th, 14th. It's it's the lowest it's been in four years. And their record is not nearly as good. And the irony is that their offense is all-time great. It was it, it, As of last week, they, they, were, they were already ahead of what the Mavericks were last year, who were the all-time high in offensive rating. So were a couple other teams, by the way. Like, that's how good everyone's been playing offensively. So there is an indication that the defense has, you know, need, needs to step up a little bit better anyway. But uh, with no question, if you're looking at a defense that's particularly um, uh, a bad fit for what's going on in this season, it's the Bucks. And that really raised a, a really interesting question to me. And I'm thinking about with the Bucks, Fred Van Vliet, I remember that in that 2019 playoffs, um, when I when I, I actually went to Toronto to watch that game and everyone thinks I'm a jinx for Giannis losing. But that's when Fred Van Vliet hit, he went, he had a son, went ballistic from three. And it's kind of that, but also how much do you want to attribute that to him both making shots, but also the Bucks allowing him to take open shots? It kind of goes both ways. Um, but then thinking about how watching teams' mistakes, we've been talking a lot about, about what teams do right, but we haven't really touched enough about what teams do wrong. Do you watch uh, d- during the season at all, like teams like the Pistons that you know have terrible records that aren't winning games, but you're trying to see, okay, what could they improve on? What could I as a coach maybe make a video about to show this team can do this to get better? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's hard. It's hard to watch those games. And, uh, you know, I got my little internal chats with my buddies. We're like, look, you won't believe this move, you know, uh, and the, the clown show that we're watching. So, I mean, you know, there's no question that some of the, the worst teams have, uh, you know, those players struggle finishing at the, bas- at the rim. You know, they do a nice move and they, man, they cannot get the ball in the basket once they get there. They struggle mightily with execution. I know the Suns uh, a few years ago, I would see the same sets that the Warriors were running for like wide open shots that they would run them and they, you know, they wouldn't screen properly. They wouldn't cut right away. The angle was off. The pass was late, all of those things. And just like across the boards, like you almost had to start over uh, from the beginning to kind of reteach the game from the ground up for those kind of teams. Because, you know, you watch like when the Warriors were great, they could throw in a set uh, that afternoon, five on five on zero in 10 minutes. And then they would run it perfectly that night for a great shot. You can't, that does not happen that way when the, with the bottom teams who don't have, I mean, you can't say they don't have talent because they obviously have talent, but there's a lot of things involved. And that's also the way you coach and the way you teach. I certainly have, I've observed over the years, some really head scratching coaching and, you know, you want it, to, it's kind of like in the, in the political realm too. Like some of these guys might get a pass because they were born in a certain time of our country where certain things were acceptable and they're struggling now to like kind of uh, to progress and they don't understand why I can't, why can't I say this word anymore? Right. Like, God darn it. I should be able to. It's like, no, you can't say these things. Uh, same thing with the coaching. It's like, um, you know, standing around for 25 minutes straight, just talking and droning on about like your game plan versus talking for three minutes and then getting them up and moving into that game plan and actually having them sweat and all those things. Like those are the weird things that make me scratch my head watching these things. So, um, you know, it's a lot of, it's a mixture of those, of, of a couple different things. Uh, I would say though, that, um, the younger coaches, I think are better at the communication. They're more progressive on their, on, on what they're running and how they're teaching it. Like the, you know, the Pistons, Dwayne Casey has been around for a long time. I, I haven't seen him at a coaching clinic in a long time. I don't know if he's been to one, you know, so, so you got to wonder about that whether or not that's why these teams are taking, you know, more chances on, uh, uh Bjorkman in, in, uh, Indiana, um, uh, Taylor, um, gosh, Ch- Taylor Jenkins in Memphis. You know, these guys were kind of no names. Chris Finch, who's, you know, a, a protege of Nick, Nur- Nick Nurse is another one. Uh, you know, these guys really had to coach their way out of a paper bag in different leagues and different places around the world um, versus like a former player who just jumped right in, had a, maybe a talented team and never really had to learn that coaching thing. So th- those are all those factors play into it. 
there's definitely been so many recent young head coach signings and it, it seems because everyone kind of looks at it as, okay, well, you're older, you have more experience, you're obviously a better coach and it might not always work out that way. And, and me being 20 years old, I really appreciate you saying that. Um, yeah. Well, what, you know, it's funny because the, uh, the Phil Jackson tree never did well. The Greg Popovich tree is kind of not doing well either. You know, they just fired uh, Floyd Pierce. They, you know, Brett Brown, uh, even when Brett Brown, they got better, like Brett Brown, my antennas would go up a little bit, uh, you know, Budenholzer, uh, you know, uh, who else is there? Um, Mike Brown, uh, Mike Brown, um, who's now an assistant with the Warriors. You know, they're all that, that, that whole uh, coaching chain is interesting because it hasn't done well either. And meanwhile, you write off the, the, the Spurs, oh, they're whatever. And then they're, look at where they're doing now. Popovich has got them right back in the thick of things and they're a tough team. Um, with two all-stars, by the way. So it's not like they're not a, you know, they don't have talent, but, um, but he, you know, you, you want to sleep on that whole lineage and then you realize, you know, Popovich is still doing it and still grinding away pretty well. It's, it's, it's amazing how it can go both ways. And I'm curious, you, you said scratching your head, but I know you're always shaking your head. So what, what is that like with the whole, <laughs> with the whole, with the coin mark, like what, what, what do you normally do when you see stuff like this? What's your reaction? Oh, I, I usually, I'll send a clip over to somebody, to my buddy, and it's like, right, make it stop in all caps, uh, you know, or uh, I'll, I laugh too. I sometimes just have to laugh at the, uh, at the just sheer display of, um, of ridiculousness um, of, of some of these plays and like, what are they training? And, or, I, or I recoil in horror when I see like guys, that, that gonna, they're going to get somebody hurt. Even like Giannis. Giannis, to me, trains like he, he doesn't train with defense, it looks like to me, because he almost ignores the defense when he's out there doing his move and then kind of seems surprised when a really athletic, good player gets in his way and, like, cuts him off. He's not prepared. And some of those misses he has are just awful. Like, you know, this is not, this is not an MVP-level play. You can't miss like that at the rim like that. And then there are times when he just barrels in there, elbows flying, um, guys taking it to the face and the neck and the shoulders. It's like someone's going to get hurt. And that's what makes me uh, really concerned about some of the guys who can get really going fast and who are so powerful, like, like Giannis. So it's so awesome thinking about that coaching stuff. And I do have a couple of quick fire coaching questions if we can run through them. Um, one of them is when it comes to play calling, like, because it, a lot, maybe the old school style is very coach centric where the coach is calling out the play. It's kind of how you see it in movies where the coach is kind of showing, doing some hand signal. Um, now in the modern day, maybe more players are taking a little more ownership of that. Where, where do you stand on that? Well, I, I'll give you an example of um, last year. So Rick Carlisle in Dallas typically calls every single play down, every play. Now, he tried that when they got Rondo. And if you might remember, it didn't go so well. And, and, it, and, and it was Carlisle's fault. Like, if you have a guy like Rondo, you don't need to be calling a play every single time down. And, you know, Rondo needed, you know, probably didn't explain that to him well enough, but that should be known. Uh, but last year, he finally stopped doing that. What was the result? An all-time great offensive rating team, the best offensive we've ever seen, right? And Luca obviously is a big part of that as well. But part of that was he wasn't having to micromanage this guy and this team. So, uh, you know, as a triangle offense coach, like I never called plays. I mean, out of a timeout, okay, let's draw a quickie, whatever. But and at the end of the game, that's it. Other than that, it was organic and movement and spacing and angles. And that's all I wanted. I wanted them to develop their own way of attacking and figuring it out because I can't get out there on the court with them. And um, so without question, the, the, the less the, offense, the coach does offensively for them or feels like he has to, the better. Awesome, no, awesome stuff there and thinking about the, the, the dynamic there with players and coaches. And then moving on from that, I mean, a lot of maybe uh, loyal listeners to your, to your show might know this answer, but what's your favorite action in the modern game? Oh, 
My favorite action. I mean, you know, there it used to be sort of like the, the the elevator play where you know a guy shoots through between two players who then close the doors and you know set a double screen for him. Um, I like you know the um, the hammer screen where a guy drives on one side and on the other side uh, a guy is moving to the corner with a back screen, a flare screen there, a hammer screen, and you almost jump out of bounds under the basket to throw that pass. Uh, I like I like that kind of stuff. I mean, listen, any kind of backdoor action is exciting to me. Uh, I've been actually finally once and for all got organized and started saving plays that I when I see them into a folder so I can have them and, and re- reference them a little bit easier. But uh, it's always the misdirection stuff. I mean, my favorite uh, individual move is the fake handoff. Uh, because it's so clever and it's so old school, right? Let's use the handoff. And then, you know, the guy who's guarding the handoff, handoffer, you know, always moves toward the cutter, you know, a little bit. And then you fake that and you go. In fact, I want to start de- developing some more um, dribbling moves out of that to fake the handoff. So you might remember Alan Iverson did a video or did a uh, commercial for probably Pepsi. And he did a move where it was like a fake spin move where he starts to spin and then he brings the ball back around his back and then catches it on the, on the same side, same arm, same hand. And it's hard to picture, you know, without being on the court, but you can use that as a fake handoff because it kind of feels like a handoff of a cutter is coming around the top of you and then throw the ball back. So I've been trying to develop all kinds of things like that too, just to kind of open up uh, some of the real old school actions that still work perfectly in today's game uh, with the, the new style ball handling that we have, which everybody can do now or is trying to do uh, and, and, and understands how to, how to develop better. Uh, when I was growing up, no one knew how to teach dribbling properly. And so as a result, like I never got much, I didn't get great at dribbling, even though I worked harder than anybody. And I, I should have been, I would, I, I had the work ethic of all these guys that are now, but I, I was sitting there stagnant dribbling in place, one hand rapid fire as hard as I could and all that, you know, wasting all that time when in reality, it's, it's the dynamic ball handling drills where you're moving in space and executing the, these different moves with the ball in your hand dribbling that get you better faster. And it's so interesting to think about how that, that skill development can come into play um, with that and ex- how these, all these actions can evolve because with hammer screen stuff like that, that was never a thing a few years ago. And now it's all I see on, on my Twitter timeline and everywhere else. Um, so this well, is more of a deep. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> um, when it comes to defense, if you had to pick one um, for a season, would you rather, would you, would you foul or defend up three? Oh, I mean, listen, I keep hitting my head with my shoe every night because it keeps happening. You foul. You follow, you follow, you follow. Now, uh, you can show me some uh, some stats that might show it's pretty close, but even those stats I've seen indicate that even though it's uh, within three or four percentage of points of each other, the, the it's in the favor of following, which to me means, okay, I don't care if it's that, if it's three points, three point percentage difference between winning and with following or winning and defending, that's a, that's a win a season, right? Or whatever that is. Uh, but the best way I can explain it for any coach who's listening to this who wants to argue about it is, and we, and we saw this last night or two nights ago with the Clippers, um, and because, by the way, this is a Popovich thing. He does not foul, and neither does his protégés, because it, this was um, – who did the Clippers play? The Bucks, maybe? And The Bucks, uh, on, Friday, the Bucks on Friday night in, in, yeah. in, in Brooklyn. And, they, you know, and they're up by three, and they, um, and they give up a um, – oh, wait, was it – no, it wasn't Brooklyn. It was, it was the Bucks and, and the Clippers, right? I think it's Bucks and the Clippers. Bucks. It was Paul George who got the three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was Paul no, George. No, well, no. I, the guy. What I'm thinking is Kawhi. Kawhi Leonard got the three, and, and it, either way, the point being that they were yeah, up we're, by three. They didn't foul. There was like seven seconds to go. They had three chances to take the foul in, in in that interim, and then Kawhi Leonard comes up and shoots a relatively open three to tie the game, and it missed. So they got away with it. But the point is, 
is that if you practice it properly and know how to foul without fouling it when the guy's shooting the ball for a three, uh, you eliminate any kind of risk of getting caught on the wrong, on a, on a bad switch or on a back door or on a drive, uh, you know, all those things that can go wrong in a, in a, when a team is prepared and running a set that they practice and it's a clever thing, just eliminate that. Take the foul, put them on the line, get the rebound. I mean, the idea that they're going to make the first one, miss the second, somehow get the rebound, and somehow it's going to get back out to the three-point line and you're going to lose is, is you know, that that's even more far-fetched than anything I can imagine. So, uh, and, and if that happens, then just tip your cap and, you know, just figure the basketball gods didn't have it in for you that night. Um, so that's that's the biggest argument I have is like just eliminate the possibility of getting beat uh, on a, on, a, on all the different ways you can get beat on a, on a defensive possession with miscommunication or falling asleep uh, or, or screwing up a switch. So those all those things happen. And then and you can't plan for those. Eliminate them. Awesome to think about that stuff. And then I'm going to. Well, um... When it comes to what happens when you when you when you maybe try to defend up three, you might you leave yourself susceptible to a moment, right, where where a game winning shot happens or something to that effect happens, and you and you become susceptible to a moment. NBA Top Shot's been blowing up lately, and I'm really curious to, if you could kind of explain to our viewers because I even even though I'm so into basketball, obviously, I've just kind of got um, acquainted with it re- well recently. So I'm really curious as to what you've seen growing in that market and where you where you see it going. Yeah, uh, it, well, I just had the guy, one of the guys on uh, my show uh, last week or a few days ago about it because, yeah, that seems to be everyone wants to talk about. And had I not had any experience like with cryptocurrency and investing there, I probably would have been completely confused as well. But the bottom line is, is they are packaging together moments, which are, you know, a highlight from three different angles. Uh, that's a digital file that you can buy. And people place value on that. And it's, you know, it's officially licensed. So it's like, if you wanted to buy a playing card, uh, an NBA card, you know, there's a lot of issues there. You got to keep it completely pristine. You got to keep it in the right settings. It can get folded, gets ripped, whatever, wet. Uh, This eliminates that because you have it as a virtual thing. And, you know, in this exchange they've created, you know, there are people that say, oh, I want to buy that from you and I'll, I'll offer you X amount of money. Some of those have gone for $40,000 or $200,000 at some point. And, um, you know, the, the whole key here is that it's blockchain based, which is just like crypto. So it's official and it's a licensed thing from the NBA. If I try to do that and say, here's a highlight with three different angles, um, you know, there is a lot less value to that than when it's officially sanctioned by the NBA. Now, I know it's, there's still a leap there as far as really, like, how can that be? But when you get on there and they have these packs and you don't know what's in the packs, right? There's like three different uh, moments in there. I, I was kind of screwing out like, oh, I, I can't wait. I want to see what, what pack might I get if I buy one, you know? Uh, I, I totally got it. I get it now. It becomes like a, a game. It's got all sorts of mixtures of like, you know, uh, the, the 2K feel to it, uh, the My Career kind of thing. It's got, uh, you know, uh, crypto uh, in there as well because you, you could make money. I wouldn't say this is the kind of thing you want to quit your job and day trade moments you know i don't think that's really where it's going um because it's not like a volatile like the crypto is but uh the bottom line is it's a vibrant thing they've got hundreds of thousands of people have now you know registered and, and are in these things watching the live shows uh they've got nba players who are also involved uh and it's probably going to end up turning into some version of currency there's already a, a notion that like a couple of these really random plays have sold for a lot of money and they're trying to they're trying to surmise that maybe this is just a, a handshake a wink wink deal where they were going to sell another package really, uh, or, or give it as, as a gift. They didn't want anyone else to know. I'm going to give you this, this LeBron gift, but you buy this, uh, this Joe Ingles layup from me for, you know, 20,000 bucks. 
you know, and that's, and then we'll be even. Uh, that might be what's happening. But what, what, what that really means is that they're using this as currency. And at some point you can get your currency out of there to somewhere else. And, you know, there's some tax implications. You might be able to avoid taxes. I don't want to, I'm not going to say that's legal. It's probably not, but um, you know, there's, there's certain value, especially with crypto and these things to having cash and having interactions uh, that are a little bit more anonymous or a little bit more protected from a lot of the, you know, the banks and all that stuff. So it's a, it's fascinating to see, but yeah, it, it, it all, it's all rooted in like the collection of, of these like trading cards that are virtual. Um, but once you get into it and you see like, oh yeah, I, the, the, there's a bit of an element of surprise. You don't know what you're going to get on these packs and those kind of things. Um, you get it. It kind of gets, becomes apparent to you pretty quickly. I, I love how this conversation, we kind of focus so much on things that are changing or new or things that are, are, are about to just evolve over the next few years, because it's not like we spoke about, oh, isn't it great coach Nick, how the pick and roll has been the same for 50 years. Like that, that wasn't what this conversation was about at all. Um, it was so innovative and I, I really appreciate having you on. Um, it was so cool getting to hear, obviously as much as I've seen all your videos, it's so much cooler um, getting, having you tell me um, in person. Uh, well, virtually, um, having you tell me uh, to my face. So it, it's really so cool. And, and thank you so much for coming on. Hey, my pleasure. I'm in. Thanks for listening to Gen Z Hoops. Make sure to follow, like, and subscribe on Instagram, LinkedIn, and all major social media platforms at Gen Z Hoops. You can tune in and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and every other podcast platform on the planet. Get ready for the next episode.